0: Good morning. My name is Tim, and uh, I serve here and get to teach. We, together, have been looking at, uh, we've been in this teaching series, we've called it Praxis, and been looking at the book of Acts, and asking about what does it look like to to live out uh, the way of Jesus in Bellingham in the 21st century. What are some of the things... Uh, the, uh, how the early followers of Jesus did it, what does that, how does that speak into our lives here and now. And, and so we're going to continue that today. We're, uh, we're going to, in a moment, uh, look at Acts 2.42 again. We've looked at it for, several times. We're looking at it again today. So if you want to start flipping there now, uh, you're welcome to. Um, and then let me, just, let me just pause. Let's pause together, uh, open in prayer, and then we'll, uh, uh, we'll continue on. So let's, let's, uh, let's pause for a, a second um, Uh, living God, we uh, do recognize that not only did you speak uh, in history, uh, interact with people to have these words written down, but um, you speak uh, still today. Somehow, uh, these words, as you, by your spirit, you you uh, are here, that they become your word to us here and now, and you, you're, you have things to say to us, and so we come here and in the middle of very real lives of... of um, Some of us have had great weeks, some of us have had very hard weeks, and we bring kind of all of who we are to you and and ask for you to meet us. Um, uh, We want you to speak uh, to us, so uh, we listen together now, in Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, we're gonna, in a moment we're gonna look at Acts 2.42, but before we we get uh, there, I want us to do an uh to uh put on our historical imaginations together. You no, know, you're probably hoping I'd say that. So we're gonna we're gonna do an act of imagination, go back in time. We're gonna we're gonna imagine uh life in first century Israel around the time of Jesus. Uh so imagine uh, imagine you're you, you're in a family, uh, first century Israel. Maybe you live in a place like this. Uh, there's a small village on the hillside. Maybe you have a, a little kind of plot of land there. It's terraced out. You have some uh, olive, maybe you have some olive trees. Maybe in, in part of the terraced area you grow gr- grain. Maybe you grow barley. And your, your family has been making its life there for generations. This is, it's your ancestral land. Your, your great grandfather and his great grandfather. I mean, you can't even remember, you don't even know how long your family's been making its life here. Um, and and, uh, and 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 you've got you've got uh, kids, or maybe you, you imagine yourself as one of the kids. So you have brothers and sisters, but your families you're living there together. And um, over the the last couple generations, your father, your grandfather, you've watched as the Romans now have come in and begun to take control of the land. The Romans are are uh, th- their armies are around, and and uh, every season they, they hire out and t- their tax collectors show up um, at your door, and they, they want part of what you've grown that year. And so part of the grain, part of the olives that you've grown for your family, they come and they ask, they take. Take part of it. They take part of the grain. Take part of the olives, and and it's begun to be this this burden um, uh, on your family, and and uh, so you're making a living, and things are going all right. Uh, but then uh, there comes a time when um, when there's a year of drought in the land. It's this. This extreme drought hits the land, and so uh, uh, the 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 olives aren't growing on the trees, and you can't get grain to grow out of the land. And you you've got you've got some you've got you know, some grain stored, but it's getting lower and lower and lower. And you don't you don't have any other options. You can't you can't just go you know you put it on a credit card or 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 just you know take it out of the savings account. Like if the if the if if you don't grow it, your kids aren't eating. And so it's starting to get very tense in your house, and, and there's these, these nights where you're, you're having trouble sleeping, and there's these arguments over, what are we going to do? And, um, or maybe you're, you're listening to your parents argue late into the night, and, there, and also sudden this idea of, do we sell the land comes up? Do we sell this land that's been in our family for generations generations, this land that is the hope of our kids making a livelihood? Do we sell this land to make it so we have enough to eat this year? And so uh, finally, after arguing and debate, you realize that we have no other choice. If we're going to make it through this, we have to sell our land. And so there's one of your countrymen who's happily working with the Romans and has found a way to, to get rich off it. One of your countrymen says they'll buy your land. In fact, n- a number of your neighbors are in the same situation. They all have to sell off their ancestral land, their family land as well. And so now, now more and more of the wealth, the land is getting concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And, uh, and so what happens is you sell the land, but then they say, well, okay, now you can work on that same land as a tenant farmer. This land that, your, that your, your dad, your granddad, your great-granddad, they've, they've owned and they've made their living. Now you're going to be just renting on it. And so you'll, what you'll grow there, um, a, a larger portion will go to them in addition to the taxes now. And so now your family is in the situation. I mean, oh, side note, which if you notice, when you read through the stories of Jesus, he talks about day laborers and tenant farmers. A lot of his stories turn around that because it was a historical reality for the people at that time. And so now your family is in the situation where um, where there's this 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 shame, this this guilt that kind of hangs over the house. You you feel like uh, have we have we let down our ancestors? Have we let down our kids? How are they going to make a living? And now it, and now it's just this tenuous because if you're one injury away, one sickness away from not being able to work that land anymore and just absolutely being destitute, have you? In your modern life have you ever felt fear over money have you ever fought over money have you ever listened to other people fight over money have you ever been awake at night over money has has has, has it ever gotten its hooks into you into your heart into your emotions this this fear that we can get around it, this anxiety over money. This this family in first century Israel, there would have been this 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 tenuousness, this fear over money. Now, imagine back in first century Israel. Again, imagine this family. Imagine that they hear about, they hear in Jerusalem, that there's this group of people who claim that God's king, his Messiah has come. They claim God is doing a new thing. God is at war. He's active. That His reign, his kingdom is coming in the world. This group of people claims that God has poured out his presence, his spirit, his presence is at work in a new way. God's up to us. They claim the Messiah has come and the Messiah is beginning to reign. Now, if you were that family and you heard about those people saying God's Messiah has come, I think one of the questions you would probably have is, well, what's God's Messiah going to do about my kids making a living? What's God's Messiah going to do about making sure we, the next drought, we still have enough to eat? What, how does that connect in with this, this injustice, like our inability to make a living in this world? What's that, this, 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 this thing you're saying this, about God's Messiah, what does that have to do with the economics here and now? Because, we, really, because, because we, we think, you know, this family would so say, we think God cares about us and cares about us having enough to eat and cares about us taking care of our kids. So if God is up to something in the world, how does it connect into that? Now, with that question in mind, that background in mind, I want us now to turn to Acts 2.42 and listen uh, with those ears. So Acts 2.42 is a very early Jesus movement. We're seeing how they lived this, how they they followed Jesus together, how they worked out. Okay, Jesus did this. How do we work it out in in our lives together? And this is what they did. It says, Acts 2.42, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this, this early this early group of Jesus followers, how did they, how did they work out the life of Jesus? How did they live it out together? Part of the way they decided, walking in the way of Jesus, part of what they said that looks like is that when well there's some of these, there's some of them that said, Well, we have we've accumulated extra. Property, extra possession. We've got extra stuff that we don't need. And so we're going we're gonna to get rid of it. We're going to use it in order. Some of you, you don't have enough. So we're going to use our extra to make sure your needs are taken care of. There's this spirit, this open-handedness about their property and possessions. This this generosity broke out. That the way they lived together, they, they said, uh, "Well, well, you all, you're you're having trouble getting enough food on the table. So how about we do this? Um, we you come over to our every night this week. You come to our house." We're going we're gonna to eat together. You're gonna, your family will have a meal every day of the week. Just, we're breaking bread in our home every night. Don't worry about it. Come and eat with us. Or, and you know what? I've got this extra piece of property, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it to make sure you all have enough. We're going to take care of each other. This generosity that, was, that, that broke out, making sure those who had extra and those who needed, they, they, they made sure the needs were covered. And so that's how they lived this way of Jesus out together. So if you were that family that we we're imagining um, that, that, that they had had to sell their land, they were in hard times, and you saw that, you saw this group of Jesus followers, the people who had accumulated extra using it to take care of those needs, you would have seen that and you would have said, yeah, that's what it would look like if, if God's Messiah was ruling over a group of people. That's, yeah. If God's up to something in the world, of course that, because that's what God's like. That's what his heart is like. So if he's doing something, yeah, of course it's going to look like that. And that would have been good, good news to you. Now, I want to kind of, a little rabbit trail, just to um, clarify something. It says, uh, let's see, yeah, yeah, that, it says all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, one question I think you might ask is: So does that mean they lit- they sold everything? Like everybody just sold everything and they just have one big a common fund and nobody owned any, everything on their own? Is that what it's saying? Well, no, it's not saying that. The uh, the the verb there where it says they sold things, it's, uh, it's in the imperfect tense, but basically it does, it's not a one-time act. When it says they sold property and possessions, it's not this one time they liquidated everything and all just created some common fun. It's a, it's a verb that implies ongoing occasional nature. So they, as the need arose, on occasion, as, the, as they felt led, they sold property and possession. As needs arose, they would sell things to make sure those needs got covered. They didn't just liquidate everything. I mean, it even said, you know, later on in the passage, it says um, they met together in people's homes. So presumably, people still had homes. Homes big enough, you could have a group of people and have a meal together. They broke bread. They, could, they still had money to buy, buy bread and have meals. So it's not this absolute liquidation and kind of pooling of everything, but it's this, this radical generosity, this holding their possessions and property very loosely, very open-handedly. Hey, God, this is yours. How do you want me to use it? Oh, you want me to help th- those people don't have enough? You want me to help take care of them? Okay. And they would occasionally, as the need arose, they would, they would sell things, and they would gather in homes and make sure people had meals. This generosity broke out amongst them. So the question that I kind of want to look at for the remainder of our time together is the question of what motivated this? What, what drove them to live this way? What inspired them? And what, maybe even before we, maybe before we ask that question, I would even ask us to reflect on that a moment for our own lives. When, when you give, when you give financially, or you, get, you give of your time, or, or you, give, you give food, what motivates you? When you, when you give, what motivates you? Do you, is it, is it, uh, is it guilt? Is it kind of this impulse guilt? You see something, you feel really guilty about it, and you, then, then you kind of, you give to take care of, I just don't want to feel guilty, so I'm going to do this. Is it, uh, is it fear? Is it, God will be mad at me if I don't do this. What motivates you? Is it duty? Just, I'm supposed to do, it. I'm just going to keep doing it. Is it, You think God will? You'll get God points. Well, I want to get on His good side. What motivates you to give? Or maybe what motivates you not to give? Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't give very much. What drives that? What's motivating that for you? Maybe it's fear, because if I give this, then that means I'm going to be in trouble. What motivates you around giving? With that, I want to look now, I want to look at what motivated them. I want to look at what motivated this early Jesus community. What drove them to live these lives of generosity. So, what motivated them? First, I believe they were motivated by the grace of God. They, they, the, the grace of God motivated, they, had, they experienced God as a God who rescued them. On, they did nothing to deserve it. They were just rescued. God had just gifted them. The, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was grace on them. The, the gift of his presence, the spirit was just a gift to them. They were so captured by the graciousness of God to them. They just had to express it in the way they gave to one another. They were captured by the grace. Flip over a page. Uh, we're in Acts 2. Flip to Acts 4. Um, just a page to the right. I love the way this passage says it. Acts 4, starting halfway through the ver- verse 33. It's describing the same way of living together, and it says this. It says, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all and and some translations actually put a period there, and I, I don't think it's doing fair because in the in the Greek there's the word gar which means for or that God's grace was so powerfully working at all for that there were no needy persons. God's grace had captured their hearts. God's the way He'd been so good to them. There's uh, if you've ever looked at the life, there's a Russian author, Dostoyevsky, and if you've ever kind of read some of his backstory, it's really interesting. Dostoevsky, he, he lived in the 1800s in Russia. And uh, he, in his late 20s, about 28, he gets involved in this, this circle of people um, that were uh, writing and sharing, and sharing writings that the, the czars considered subversive to their reign and their authority. And so um, at age 28, he goes on trial. He's arrested, goes on trial for this. And uh, after four months or so, he's convicted. And so Daswesky uh, and some others, it's December 23rd, like 1848, and they're, uh, 1849, and they're, and they're taken out to be executed. I mean... You don't. Nobody wants to be executed, but December in Russia—that's a bad time. And so they're taken out, um, and they're they're blindfolded, and the firing lines lined up, and um, and they're and Dasko he is ready. He's going to be. And then all of a sudden, this cart, you know, horse-drawn cart, and there's a letter from the Czar in it, commuting their sentence, and he's spared from execution. And this event, being ready and having the firing squad there and then being spared, this ends up shaping Dostoevsky's entire life. And in fact, if you read his writings, this, 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 this thread of grace runs straight through them all because he had, he had this, ex, this profound experience of grace, of rescue. Since the, the early, early Jesus followers, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. There are no needy persons. They had encountered the graciousness of God in the life, death, and resurrection, and the gift of, and it affected them so much. There are no needs among them at all. So, first, what motivated them? God's grace. Second, what motivated them? I believe that they understood that they were adopted into God's big extended family. They saw one another as brothers and sisters that they would all, if they had been adopted and, um, into God's family, they were, now, they were now family, brothers and sisters. That's how they saw one another. So uh, that meant they, take care, they took care of one another. When, I, when I, my brother and sister come over to my house, um, they're in town, they come over, we order pizza, we pop Murphy's, um, we put it on the table. I don't go to my brother and be like, uh, where's the $5 or no pizza for you? <laughs> no. They every in my I make sure everybody gets their share of pizza. Everybody, if they're hungry, they get pizza in my house. My brothers and sisters and in God's house, he makes sure the brothers and sisters get their pizza. Make sure every, does everybody have enough? Yeah, that's how it works in God's house. In the early, in the second and third century, um, the Roman, Roman pagans who uh, watched the Christians as, a, as this movement broke out in the Roman Empire. And one of the accusations they hurled against the Christians, really, it's a strange, they accused them of incest. And it's like, what in, what's that about? Well, because these Christians, this movement broke out, and they'd go around, and they'd say, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. That's how they, and they'd say, brother and sister, are you coming over to my house for the love feast tonight? And they yeah, we'll be there. Because that's what they, when they got together and had the, they broke bread and wine, they called it the love feast. Brother and sister, coming over for the love feast. And the, the Roman pagan's like, what is going on? <laughs> that's strange. Stuff. But they saw each other as family. There's this passage in First John um, 3, 17, uh, I don't know. Yeah, can, can, yeah. There we go. First um, John three seventeen. He says, "If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person?" It was just like I mean, if we if you if we if you love God and, and we're you're in this big family, of course we're going to take care of each other. I mean, we're going to make sure everybody gets enough pizza. That's how that's they saw each other as brothers and sisters in God's big extended family. So motive- So what motivated them? First, they were captured by God's grace. Second, they saw each other as brothers and sisters. Third, they this is interesting. They saw themselves, God had been working through the people of Israel for centuries. And the early Jesus movement, they saw themselves as the remnant, the continuation of the promises and the work God had done in Israel. They saw themselves as the remnant of God's people through which he was going to continue his rescuing work in the world. So notice, um, in that passage that we just looked at, Acts 4.33, it has this phrase. Uh, it, says, it says, God's grace was so powerful he worked among them all that there were no needy persons among them. Now earlier, uh, almost over a thousand years earlier, God had been giving his law in the book of Deuteronomy to his people, and one of the things he did, I mean, God in the law, he told them how to be generous, how to take care of each other, how to make sure needs were met, and one of the things he said, he gave them this moral vision, this moral vision for the people. He said, there should be no needy persons among you. Deuteronomy uh, uh, 15, four, and that phrase gets picked up almost verbatim in the book of Acts. And it's the author's way of saying, you know what God, you know that vision that God gave the people um, over, over a thousand years ago, that way of living that we should aspire to? Oh yeah, that, that's happening. It's like the, the author of the book of Acts is saying, in the, the, the Jesus movement, that's coming true. That they saw themselves as the remnant, the continuation of God's people through which he was going to do his rescuing work in the world. They were bringing this vision that God had given them to fulfillment. So God's grace, what motivated them? God's grace, that they saw each other as family. They were the remnant of God's people through which God was rescuing the world. Four, I would say they saw with, um, with the resurrection of Jesus, they understood themselves as living in the age of resurrection. Resurrection is a very, it's an interesting idea, the way first century Jews thought about the idea of resurrection. Stay with me here, the, kind of the logic of resurrection. Uh, the, the logic of resurrection went something like this. That um, uh, they knew God was good. They, undoubtedly, God is good. He is faithful. But they looked around at their world and they saw people who had been faithful to God, they were starving, they were suffering. And that's saw people who, who thumbed their nose at God just getting rich and succeeding. And so they said, look, if God is really good, if he is just, this cannot be the end of the story. There must be more. And resurrection is when God, God reveals his justice and reveals his faithfulness. The, the resurrection is, is uh, taking care of those things that were not right in this world. And so um, when, when they talked about resurrection, the idea of resurrection was all tied together with God making things right. God being faithful to those who are faithful to him. God making sure that their kids would be taken care of. So look at this. So notice, if, if resurrection is tied to God making things right in the world, check this out. Back to that same passage we've been looking at in Acts 4. Um, we're going to just go up a few verses, starting in verse 32. Um, listen to the ideas the author connects together here. First, he says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed uh, that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. So, generosity. Generosity. Next, he goes on. He says, with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So resurrection. Then next, and God's grace will so powerfully work among them all that there are no needy persons among them. Generosity. And so you have have generosity, resurrection, generosity. You have a resurrection sandwich. Why? Why? Because resurrection, if this, if if Jesus has been raised, if we are in the age of resurrection, that means God is at work making the world right. If Jesus has been raised, the way we the way we demonstrate that, the way we prove that, God's up to things making the world right. Jesus is raised, have a bowl of soup. Jesus is resurrected, here's a coat. Jesus is raised. Come on, let's make sure you have a roof over your head. Jesus is raised, here's a toaster. Jesus is raised. And the resurrection and God making the world right, those were all bound up together for them. We see it right there. God, generosity, resurrection, generosity. So, what motivated them? What motivated them? God's grace, adopted into one big family. They're the remnant of God's people. God was continuing his work through. And they believed it was the age of resurrection, God was making things right. And we could go on, there's so much more we could say. We could talk about how they believed Jesus was their king. And Jesus talked about this stuff, and so they're going to follow the way of the, their king that meant living like this. We could talk about how ultimately they were convinced that God was the ultimate owner of everything. Everything they owned, everything in their garage, everything in their closet, everything in their 401k it was ultimately God's. And so they believed that meant listening to him how to use it. We could talk about how that, that God's very presence, his spirit was indwelling in them, was amongst them. And if, and if God's presence, if God, Father, Son, Spirit, if God is a community of self-giving love, if God is inherently the most generous being in the universe, if, if the, cro- the, the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus reveals the heart of God, the generous heart of God, if God is for the widow and orphan, the vulnerable, if God cares about them, he's their defender, if that presence gets a hold of a people, they'll start looking like that too. And so for the author of Acts, one of the marks of the Spirit, how do you know if the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, how do you know if the Spirit of God has fallen on a people? How do you know if the Spirit of God has taken, made its home in someone's heart? How do you know that? Well, people start selling extra stuff. And using it to take care of those who have needs. Kids have enough to eat. People have roofs over their heads. Ah, The vulnerable are protected. People have warm coats in the wintertime. A spirit of generosity and freedom with possessions breaks out. Because that's what God's like. As I was was thinking about these themes this week, as I was thinking about it, um, one of the things I reflected on is I believe God's spirit, that spirit is in this church family. I have seen and experienced God's heart of generosity here. I'm convinced of it. That uh, that phrase uh, in in Acts four thirty three it says for God's grace was so powerfully at work among them that there were no needy persons. I think I think we could we could that could be written here and now. God's grace was so powerfully at work. God's grace was so powerfully at work among them that they made meals all the time. Meals for new parents, meals for families in crisis, meals for disc golf players, meals for foreign exchange students. They just made meals and just gave them away. They they got together and they ate together. They broke bread in each other's homes. God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all that they started a food bank and they gave volunteer hours and staff hours and donated food to make sure people on this side of town had food in their cupboards. God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all that occasionally they would give away plane tickets or cars or furniture to make sure people's needs were met. As they had extra, they looked for where the needs were God's grace was so powerfully at work among all that they held their possessions loosely. They would loan out their cars, they would loan out their homes, they would loan out their cabins. They would just make sure they, 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 didn't, they weren't owned by their stuff. They just shared it willingly. God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all that some people, they would, they would set aside 10% of their income, 15% of their income, 20% of their income, and devote it to make sure that Jesus' mission of generous love could continue in this world. He could go forward that as a community they could have money set aside that if a family was in crisis, they could give them a gas voucher. They could help them out. That God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all. The spirit of generosity broke out. And I see that here. God's spirit is at work. His generous heart is at work here. I celebrate it. It's uh, the way, the picture in my mind is almost like there's a, that God by a spirit, uh, as we follow the voice of Jesus, there's like this generosity party happening, this free sharing. And yet I also recognize, I also recognize, I believe there are ways and places that God invites us into that further. I also recognize that this generosity party, like all parties, has some people leaning against the wall just kind of checking it out. They see it. Oh, that's cool. That's interesting. Yeah, but I'm, I'm gonna stay over here on the wall where it's safe. I do believe that for some of us, we're we're invited to join the party, to join the generosity party. I wonder even when, when you hear about uh, when you hear about the idea of of being radically generous, of of setting aside a, a portion of your income to give to the needs uh, as God leads you, as, as, as holding your possessions loosely uh, and letting, sharing their, or even selling them uh, if need be. I wonder that this idea of radical generosity, I wonder when you hear about that, for you, what is your heart's reaction to that? I mean, when you think about that, you using your stuff that way, does that sound exciting? Does it sound freeing? Does it sound joyous? Or do you feel guilty? Does it sound scary? Is there something inside of you that clenches up when you hear that? What's your heart reaction to that? What might that be saying to us, to you? Because I think, I think the God of the universe, Father, Son, Spirit, is a community of self-giving love, of generous love. He wants to put himself, that same spirit, that same attitude in us, that we would live lives of generous, self-giving love. He, he wants us to find freedom in that. God wants to save people's souls. He also wants to save people's wallets and their closets. He wants to save all of us. And there's a way that our stuff, our money, our possessions can get its hooks into us. And that our stuff begins to own us. God wants to save us from that. That we would have a freedom from our stuff. God wants us, God wants every one of us to be so profoundly impacted by his graciousness, by the way he's rescued you, that you couldn't help but express that in how you use your things. God wants you to be so convinced of his goodness that he wants to take care of you, that he is faithful, that you don't don't interact with money with fear, but yeah, God's good, he's gonna take care of me. I can be open-handed with it. He wants your life to be grounded in that sense of his goodness. I believe this invitation from him is an invitation to live in an open and spacious place, a place of freedom, a place of generosity, a place of joy. I believe he invites us into that. And so maybe, maybe the question to end with this morning, the question for you to consider um, as we continue worshiping, the question to consider over lunch, the question to think about before uh, I fall asleep tonight, what, what might God be inviting you to today? What does his invitation look like to you? It's going to look like, it's going to be different for every one of us. It's not a formula. Some of us are students. Some of us are retired. Some of us are, uh, we have a new job. Some of us are unemployed. It's going to look different for everybody. But what, what is he in this? What is he inviting you to? What is that invitation? What does it sound like? What is he saying to you? Let's pray together. Jesus, I'm uh, struck by, um, I'm struck by the way that you walked through life with freedom towards possessions. You knew how to share a good meal, um, you had clothes on your back, and yet you were never owned by stuff, you were never owned with, by fear over money, you uh, you invited people into a, a way of living, uh, of trusting um, in God, of, of sharing, of being generous with one another, and Jesus, we we want you to be the master of our lives. We want your attitude, your spirit to be in us. And so, um, would you speak and show us what that looks like? If that's a word of encouragement, it's a word of faithfulness, um, a new word of invitation, speak to us here and now. Thank you. Amen.